0: This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world, and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So, for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. Welcome. Hello, hello. This is the Big Beautiful Writer's Interview with Sarah Manguso in conversation with myself, Danielle Laporte, and Linda Sievertson. And if you're familiar with us, you know that we start everything with a blessing, and it goes like this. We are here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding here and now, and so it is. And off the top, we let you know where you can find us. So, you know, you can find me at Danielleport.com. Linda lives at bookmama.com. And Sarah Manguso, I'm going to spell her name. So this is her URL as well. So it's Sarah with an H, -H S-A-R-H-M-A-N-G-U-S-O.com. And Linda, take it away.
1: Hi. So we are bringing you Sarah Manguso because we know that her work is extraordinary. She is the author, most recently, of Ongoingness, The End of a Diary, which we'll talk all about. Her five other books include The Guardians, which was named one of the top ten books of the year by Salon, and The Two Kinds of Decay. Named an editor's choice by the New York Times Book Review and a best book of the year by the Independent, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Telegraph, and more, she is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Rome Prize, and her books have been translated, you can't even imagine how many languages. Her essays have appeared in Harper's, the New York Review of Books, the New York Times Magazine, And her poems actually have won a Pushcart Prize, which amazes me. I can't write poetry to save my life. And have appeared in editions of the Best American Poetry Series. She has taught writing at Columbia, Fairfield, the New York School, NYU, Pratt, Princeton. Holy moly. Born and raised near Boston. Sarah now lives in L.A., which is where I met her at our dear friend Jillian Lauren's house. So welcome, welcome, Sarah. I'm so glad that you're here.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It is, when Lynn and I were preparing for the interview, we both had that moment of like, oh my God, she's like the real deal.
1: <laughs> we both said <laughs> it. The real uh,
0: deal. Real deal. So listen, this is my first question. Sarah, when someone reads your bio, how do you feel? Like what's your inner response? Oh,
2: wow. That is a question I have never once been asked I don't know. Well, two things. One is that no matter how much one strives, and I'm going to speak in general, but really, you know, I'm talking about myself. No matter how much (laughs) one strives and how many goals one sets and achieves, there is always an infinity of goals above. So everything is relative. There are just as many people I would love to match In terms of, you know, number of perfect sentences written or number of books sold at my sort of, you know, uglier moments. And I actually had a, well, I had many good conversations with my agent about this precise thing. But whenever I start feeling kind of greedy and acquisitive and needing that next thing, he reminds me, you know... Everybody has this one person that they're constantly looking up to. Everybody. And then he started naming, like, you know, the most famous white guy, novelist they win all of the prizes and he said, you know, I guarantee so-and-so is looking at so-and-so and wanting what he has and so-and-so is looking at so-and-so and, and wanting what he has. And there are young writers who write to me, this is still my agent speaking, who write to me, Sarah, and say that they admire you. So it's just sort of I think it is best it's this circle of inspiration and probably at its worst, it's a circle of just raw envy. So those are some thoughts about the professional bio. It's its own thing. I mean, it's its own genre. There are these standards and sort of secret rules to writing it. And Anyway, oh, I like the little tweaks that you made to it. Everybody everybody makes their own little tweaks, and yours are, I think, very smart.
1: Oh, thank you. Okay, Linda's very good at
2: emphasis
0: and, like, emotional punctuation. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Seriously, I've never been told that before, but I was a childhood actress. I did um, all sorts of stuff in our community theater when I was growing up, and so maybe it makes sense because I was narrating The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, and you have <laughs> to be very sorry on those. Okay, so best mistake, career or otherwise?
2: Ooh, that's such a good one. Oh, my goodness.
1: Well... Okay, a lot
2: of bad boyfriends, but, um, yeah, you know, all those stories have probably been told. The biggest career mistake, wow. Okay, without implicating anybody, I have to first say that when I had my first book accepted for publication, I was 26, and it was a poetry collection, and it was taken by an amazing poetry cooperative that had been started by a group of women in Cambridge in 1974. So this was 2000. My book had just been taken. I was so proud. It was my MSA thesis plus a few other poems. I mean, there's nothing like the first book. There's really no experience like preparing for the publication of book number one. And I worked with several members of the cooperative and I received many good suggestions on how to revise And I was incredibly naive about what my rights were as a writer, what my rights were as a person who published. And one of the cooperative members said to me, you know, Sarah, you have a lot of long lyric lines here. A lot of them stretch to, in fact, the right-hand margin. And we're going to have to indent them if they run over the dimensions of the paper and You know, it might be better if you just had shorter lines. Hmm. It would look better. And I heard that as, okay, let's do it. This is one of the things I have to do in order to publish my first book. I'm doing it. I will eat a plate full of webs. I will do whatever. (coughs) And so I did it. And most of those shorter lines are lines that I really regret. And, in fact, many of the poems in my first book come in two versions. There's the version with the long line that appeared in, you know, whatever literary journal, which was my intended form for the poem. And then there's the form that appears in the book. So, you know, that's it. Like, the book exists. I'm not going to go back and republish another edition of my first book. And it was a big mistake, but it was also a really good lesson that I will never forget because every time I open the book, I just sort of look at, yep, there's another line break that I never really intended. So it's just a good reminder to kind of stay true to the intention that I have for a piece of writing. You know,
0: it's a great lesson because it's like the macro and the micro is in there. It's like the micro of the line break, you know, the precision, and then the macro of which a lot of newbie writers getting published, you just want the deal. You're so grateful for the deal, you know? And I remember my first book with Little Brown, my editor, with whom, you know, it was a stressful relationship, she wanted to cut like the last two chapters Uh (laughs) of the book that really tied it up, that made it all kind of useful. And my lesson there was, lean on your agent to fight the fight. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I got uh, that. You know, I was just on fire. Like this is wrong. And one thing I've learned is that, like, when you feel that kind of shock, you're right. Mm. Shock for oh. me is an indication oh. of you're right. And then I literally called my agent. You know, I was teary-eyed and said, "Say what?" And she went to the mat and got it. And I that's big learning in lots of ways. Yeah.
1: I have something odd that I've never spoken about that happened to me as well. I got my galleys from Simon & Schuster for a book called Generation Green. It was an environmental book. And they had put copy on the back that was sort of inflammatory against landfills. And I had never had any negative feelings about landfills. I mean, I knew that some had better seals than others, but I knew there were some companies like Waste Management who did a really good job with their landfills. And I called my editor right away and I said, you can't write this. This isn't my wording and it can't go on the back of the book as a bullet point. It can't go in the press release. I would never speak badly about landfills. Before landfills you know, were in existence, there was the plague because rats overtook everything. I said, so please take that out. So she said, oh, okay, well, we didn't even know. Took it out. They put something nice about some landfill stuff with waste management inside the copy because I requested it. This was all at the last minute. Mm -hmm. Years later, I fell in love with the man who I've lived with for the last five years, who's an executive with waste management and turns trash into gas that fuels their trucks. And he supervises the best and biggest landfills in the world. (laughs) You know, I just saw that copy and I was horrified. So I followed my gut. Isn't that odd? That's
2: a good
0: story. Precognitive gut reaction.
1: Uh-huh. Okay, Sarah, so we want
0: to know about your creative rhythm. So, what's a day look like? What
2: do dark periods look like? Light periods, but how do you write? Oh, wow. Well, that's a question that I would have answered radically differently before I gave birth. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. before then, it was really very regimented and very easy, and I did most of my writing since I lived sort of on the academic calendar. I did not teach during the summers and I would always try to land some great writing residency where I could hide in a cabin all summer and write a book. And that's essentially what I did. I wrote I wrote three books at McDonnell and Yaddo and revised some sort of piecemeal once I got home. So that all changed in twenty twelve when my son was born and I now write I assume how many moms of young children write or make work, you know, anybody who has a kind of art practice has to find a new way of reconciling that with all of these new responsibilities. And especially if it's one's first kid, when there's a portion of every day when I'm Googling this rash or this strange sign or symptom that means absolutely nothing, but it takes up time. I believe right in the interstices of the greater rhythm of my day. The real rhythm of my day is dictated by the needs of my kid and of my family. And I know that this isn't a permanent condition, that it's something that's very much contained by the experience of having a young kid, and that things will change, I hope, when he's older. But on the other hand, I've never really felt... Comfortable writing really long form. I've always been much more interested in making something small, trying to affect something small, rather than trying to make something large and grand. So I have no itch to write a 400 page novel. I'm much more interested in writing an essay, say, the component of which is like a 200 word section. um, the book that I'm working on now is a collection called 300 Arguments, and they're Ah. very short essays, many of them between one and three sentences. So Ah. I guess my work has kind of changed in order to be able to coexist with all the other things that are happening. So I write in short bursts whenever possible. I just got home from a Seven City book tour, which was really the first big trip that I've taken since my son was born. And you have to understand that I've never had a six-hour span of time during which there was no housework to distract me, no family. I got so much work done, and I read so much. So I now have this secret conviction that I'm going to do a little bit more travel, maybe do more readings at colleges and universities, which I kind of allowed to diminish for a few years while my son was young. But just getting on a plane and flying somewhere, oh, God, I'm so excited. I'm going to Bennington in the summer. I'm going to Ithaca College in the fall, and I'm really just looking forward to those plane
1: trips. (laughs) Danielle, you get really inspired on planes. Yep. I
0: feel closer to everything on an airplane, and I also feel like I'm getting away with something. Like, you cannot find me. I am inaccessible (laughs) to, like, everyone, everybody, you know, and just being in that, I feel hermetically sealed. Yeah.
1: You know, Sarah, we didn't talk about ongoingness much at all when I introduced you. It's hard for me, actually, to explain, but I was thinking about when you were just talking about writing in short bursts, Isn't that how you wrote when you were writing your 800,000-word diaries? (laughs) They had to be in short bursts, right? And can you tell us briefly what is ongoingness and compare it to your 800,000-word diaries?
2: Ah, Okay. Well, the diary is a diary, and the book is a book about that diary. Mm. A couple of critics have, I think, miscalled it or misinterpreted it as a diary about a diary. Right. It's not that. It's not a meta diary. It's a book. And it's a rather short book. It's a novella length essay about what happened to my graphomania, my impulsive need to write, my obsessive need to write after I had my son. And in a nutshell, what happened is that my experience of time, my experience as a person, as a body in time, changed so radically. That my anxiety about my lost memories subsided over a period of months. And this is an anxiety that I had had for 25 years. I kept this daily diary for 25 years and skipping a day was unthinkable. I wrote it in hospitals. I wrote it on buses. There was absolutely no way to cross over to the next day without having fully analyzed and documented what had happened in the previous day. And so, Originally, Ongoingness was going to be a book about graphomania. It was going to be, I was thinking of it as my, uh, this is a terrible phrase to use, but I'll share it. I was thinking of it as my grown-up book. You know, I would finally write a long book, a long piece of researched journalistic nonfiction. I would read memory science, and I would get into the case histories, and I would present graphomania as a basic problem to the lay reader. And I worked on that book for two years. I did all of the things that I had set out to do, and I became less and less interested in it because that's just not the natural mode in which I enjoy writing. I like trying to figure out an existential problem of my own and then translate it in a way that I hope is useful to other people. So that existential problem, that need to keep the diary, actually subsided. and. So the subtitle of Ongoingness is The End of a Diary, and about halfway through the book, I tried to narrate what exactly is happening to my experience of memory and time that so utterly and so quickly and so shockingly to me erased that basic anxiety that I needed to document and document
1: and document. Hmm. Is that a relief?
2: Absolutely, yes. It's a huge relief. It's a huge
1: relief. Yeah, we were Um, talking at the party, we were talking about the Boyfriend Log and how the mm -hmm. app, that it was the same thing for me because I was such an obsessive diarist because I couldn't figure out my relationship. So I would look at my diary and go, I have no idea if this is a healthy relationship or not because in the last week I've written 50 pages. It wasn't until I put colors with them that it just stopped the madness.
2: It's such a brilliant idea. I had that shock of, wow, this is an actually useful tool. I think what I said to you, and right after you described it to me, was, this might be one of the only actually useful
1: apps I've ever heard of at all. (laughs) I think immediately you said something like 411, Google, Google Maps, and Yahoo, and the boyfriend log (laughs) or something. (laughs) Away from us. It was it's pretty, true.
2: Those are really the only things that we need. There's too much material, and especially if you're, as you are, a skilled and verbose self-documenter. There's no way to distill all of that into an instruction, a self-instruction. What do I do? What do I do with all the words? Yeah, I could keep praising you, but I feel you blushing on the other end. Oh, so, yeah, no, mind.
1: please. Danielle, it, next question. <laughs> FYI for everybody,
0: I just looked up graphomania, and it's also referred to as scribomania. 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 Oh, yeah. really? Scribomania. Yeah, there you go. There's also, Did I just there's teach also, you
2: something? Awesome. Yes, there's also <laughs> hypergraphia. <laughs> hypergraphia, if you like the, the, the Greek root better than the Latin. But I like scribomania. <laughs> That's lovely. Okay, next question has to do with advice. So
0: what's the best advice that anyone gave you along the way in terms of your creativity and or the business of creativity?
2: Well, I have a piece of good advice about creativity that I think about constantly. I really do feel as if it's sort of below my conscious awareness whenever I'm making anything it was that permanent as soon as I heard it. I was in my first year of my poetry MFA. And this was the first day of a workshop class with a new instructor. And I was very intimidated because I was the youngest in the class and I was the only first-year student in the class. All of the others okay. were second year. So, yeah, I mean, I had some stuff to prove. So this is how I dealt with that ego need. I composed a poem and it was about pure philosophy and it, I believe, was attempting to rework something in Wittgenstein, which I hadn't read, but, you know, I had <laughs> some sort of basic awareness that if I armed myself with this great thinker's authority, I would be okay. Okay in this class, I would fool everybody into thinking that I knew what I was doing. Or maybe even that I knew things that they didn't know. My teacher was not an academic. He was an artist. It was the poet Dean Young, absolutely brilliant, brilliant poet. And he read my poem very kindly. And after the sort of cursory treatment of it, I asked him a question about Wittgenstein and it was one of those questions that was sort of half legitimate but half my needing to prove that I could be there in the room, that I deserved to be there in the room because I was talking about Wittgenstein and instead of answering the question he just took a breath, sort of let my question breathe Mm -hmm. and then he said, Sarah, you know, The important thing to remember is that I only have like 40, 45 more years left to live. And that was his way of teaching me that (laughs) I'm writing for a reader, a mortal reader, who has some time to read, but not really that much. You know, wow. most of my readers would not, you know, <laughs> give three hours to trying to <laughs> suss out exactly what I was trying to do in this ridiculous attempt at a poem, and it really just kind of burned all of that pseudo-intellectual pretension out of me, wow. or at least I hope it did, or maybe it's continuing. <laughs> and, look, and look how
0: pr- he would be so proud of you now. You're doing one and two and three-sentence essays. Yeah. This is his definition of hitting it out of the park.
2: Well, (laughs) I guess it's his fault. He's a great (sighs) teacher.
1: What a great Mm. line. That would have nailed me to the (laughs) cross. Yeah. No, it was painful. I won't lie about that,
2: but ultimately it was very helpful.
1: Sarah, when was your first I did it, I pulled it off moment?
2: Oh, my gosh. Oof. Can you narrow it down? I mean, I now just my brain is swirling back to <laughs> high school, middle school, mm, elementary no, creative, school. creative. Yeah, Let's say creative
1: professional publishing, I did it, I pulled it off moment, whether that's media or just with a publishing experience.
2: Mm. Well, I think this falls into that category. This wasn't an I did it moment, but it was just a moment of thinking, I could not be more grateful. This is maybe the apotheosis of all my work. and. It's a review that ran either last week or the week before in the New Yorker magazine. And it was written by a young critic, a brilliant critic named Mm -hmm. Alice Gregory. And I have admired her from afar for, I think, as long as she's been writing. Since she graduated from college, she's been writing book criticism for places like The New Yorker and N Plus One and the Boston Globe, major outlets, smaller outlets. And she is so damn smart. And she reviewed my book. And she reviewed it. The great gift of this review, the amazing experience of this review, is not that it was 100% positive. It was, you know, maybe 98% positive. But the great part of this review is that she engaged the book on its own terms. What I mean by that is that she evaluated it according to the goals that I had set for the book. And that is a way that a critic can absolutely honor a book, whether the review is positive or negative, she evaluated what the book was attempting. Now, I've gotten good reviews and bad reviews over the years. We all have. But the most disappointing review is not the most negative review. The most disappointing review is the one written by the reviewer who doesn't engage the book, who doesn't engage it on its own terms, who looks at it and says, huh, this book doesn't have these qualities, which I usually like, so I don't like it. That's yeah. not a criticism. Yeah. That's mm-hmm, just an admission mm-hmm. of taste. Mm-hmm. And so, this review by Alice Gregory is not just positive, but it truly engages the book. And it just was so profoundly aware of everything that I was trying for. And it's an amazing experience to be read like that. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know what I just feel like being with you now is just the energy of devotion. You know, you speak of your work and literature and the business of it, the way a lot of Buddhists talk about, you know, Buddhist tenets. It's mm-hmm. like a religion <laughs> in a healthy sure. way. It's really
2: beautiful. Yeah. I take that as a uh, Thank you. Mm.
0: So let's shake it up with total trivia, multiple choices. Get out of devotion into, like, finding out who you really are. Okay. Gold or silver? Gold. Leonard Cohen or Rumi?
2: Uh, Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I approve. He's Canadian. Darker, or er, milk chocolate. Yeah, you didn't know he was Canadian?
2: Yeah. Is he Canadian? Yeah. Yeah. There, there yeah. is a town in North Ontario. Yep. That's right. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Dark and milk oh, so chocolate? Dark or milk? Oh, both? Yeah. You can say both. Yeah, I can live without both. Oh, what was that one? Something Lace or lemon?
0: or linen. Hmm. Linen. Hmm. I knew I loved
1: you.
0: Ah. <laughs> um... Linda, do you want to jump in with something? I, you want to go deeper
1: anchor us back? Uh, I'd like to know what your creative secret weapon is when you're not sure what to do. Throw it out. Cut it out. Omit it. Ugh. And don't
2: just omit it. Really just delete it. I don't save drafts. What? Yeah, I would go insane if I had that volume of material <laughs> to consider every day. <laughs> I work on one document and when it's done, it's done. Oh, man. You
1: just scrambled my
2: brains. Oh, no. Well, I think it's a good work practice for people who write in short forms. I think if I delete a third of a book, it's, you know, 30 pages or so. But if somebody who would written an 800-page book had to delete a third of the book, I think I would be a lot more leery about losing (laughs) 266 pages. Right, right. So, yes, use it at your own risk.
1: <laughs> yeah, that really hits home. I have multiple drafts of something I'm going through right now, and it's insanity. It's absolutely insanity. They're so different, and I can't choose. How long is it?
2: How long is this form?
1: I'm afraid to admit it, 165,000 words. So it's oh, a whole why book. would
2: you be afraid to admit it? You're a long-form writer.
1: It's yeah. too many books. It's several books, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to make it one book, and I have three versions.
2: Hmm, wow.
1: We need to see topic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you need to
2: talk to some of my novelist friends who do things like that. To me, it's a magic trick. I have no idea how to
1: write like that. It's painful.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I have a couple
0: questions on this topic. So, first of all, why do you read reviews? Why do you read them? Do you gird your loins before you do? Like, do you have to constrict yourself? Do you protect yourself? Or are you just like, I'm so open and expanded <laughs> and standing in the truth of my work that, like, whatever it is. But talk to us about reviews.
2: Great. Oh, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, I read reviews. I read all the reviews. And I read them because I'm hoping to find something like this review that I was just describing, a review that really engages the book on its own terms, and, you know, one hopes is mostly positive. Those reviews are real rare gifts. But if I didn't read reviews, I would never get to them. Do I gird my lines? Well, here's the thing. My most negative reviews... Well, I'll just talk about the reviews for ongoingness because that's what I'm living with right now. The book has been out five weeks, so the reviews are still sort of coming in a few per week. My great fear is not to receive a negative review because not everybody's going to like the book. And in fact... The most negative reviews that I've received over the past five weeks have been from critics who haven't really engaged the book on its own terms. Now, Uh it would be traumatic, I think, to receive a completely negative review that also engaged the book on its own terms and decided that the book failed to achieve every single goal that it had set out to achieve. But the thing is, I think people that don't like books generally don't want to spend the time explaining why. Especially, well, I don't want to single anybody out, but let's just say people who write for daily newspapers have a lot of work to do. And so their technique is not really to do the kind of in-depth review that would run in a weekly like The New Yorker or that would run in a monthly like Harper's, like The Atlantic, So I guess there are different degrees of loin girding for types of reviews. It is inevitable that at some point during a book launch, and this is true of every writer I know, very successful people, at some point you're going to become totally over-involved in some blog that you find that, for some reason, just has it out for you. Or you're going to just sort of blithely click on over to Goodreads, and, and then you'll start studying all of the one-star reviews. And it's just, I think this is just a problem that is part and parcel of paying any attention at all to the Internet and paying any attention at all to how the book is being read. I mean, if I could just speak about one more great thing in general that one hopes to find, like something that I hope to find, the reason that I read with all reviews, because you never know who's going to just say something brilliant. The whole point for me of reading reviews is to see whether I did it, whether I truly succeeded in making the work that I wanted to make. And along the way, reading a really intelligent review, I can learn things about the book that I would never have been able to articulate. Mm -hmm. Things, just patterns that come out in the work that I did not impose consciously, that I made no intellectual decision to include, but that are there anyway. And that's Mm -hmm. very thrilling. When somebody reads my work that deeply and with that much kindness, as to see things that I didn't even know were there. So I guess that's, like, the four stages of reading reviews. Good ones, bad ones, ones that engage you, and then just the sort of, like, trolling for bad news, good reading hmm. situation. I
0: think this is an essay. This is your next essay. You don't have to credit me or anything. Somebody so.
2: should.
0: Um, Somebody's I brilliant. think Maybe you should do it. This is such a dual pattern that I did not impose consciously, which we often can't see. You know, it's that you are the fish swimming in the water. You don't see the pattern. Yeah. 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 And um, hopefully they're showing you patterns that you're that are not too psychotic. <laughs> yeah. That are not horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. aren't yeah, horrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay,
1: final yard. Linda,
0: what are you taking at home with year?
1: So what is your song that still must be sung? You know, the creativity or message or production that has to get out of you?
2: Hmm, that's a great question. I did just finish a book, and so I feel very empty now.
1: Yeah. You know, I
2: don't save anything for the next book. When I'm writing something, I put it all in. Uh-huh. And so this book of the very short essays that I mentioned earlier. is called 300 Arguments, and it's coming out next year from Grey Wolf. Then that's my uh-huh. little plug for my non-existent book, my soon-to-exist book. <laughs> After that, it is true. It is exactly as you put it. There's this sort of furious hunger to be able to articulate whatever next existential problem I will need to solve for myself. I have no doubt that such a problem will announce itself, but I don't know what it is yet. It is sort of nice not to have one for a little while.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they always return, right? Yeah, but they always
2: return in some new form, and some utterly unanticipated form. I have a final question. How would you describe your teaching style? That's a good question. At some point during the semester, I sort of perversely, without really meaning to, make the class into the class that I wish I could always be teaching. And that is essentially this form, the form of this conversation. I don't really want to lecture so much and respond to questions. I hate feeling that I'm Mm. telling my students something they've already figured out, (laughs) something that they're not ready to think about yet. I want to answer the precise questions that they have at that moment. And so it really is like at some point during the semester, I realize that I'm showing up with lecture notes, but as quickly as I can during the session, whether it's an hour or two or three hours, I just make them ask me every question that they have. If there could be a course that's just you can ask this writer questions all semester. That is the course that I would always want to teach. I think that would be a great teaching
0: mantra is just make them ask the questions.
1: Really, mm-hmm. really, really.
0: I don't teach per se, not in the traditional style, but if I'm doing a gig and I'm talking, I do this sort of free-form improv thing, which is my way of fooling <laughs> gig mm-hmm. agents into just letting me do whatever I want. When I first started talking about it, I would say, well, you know, I'm really better Q&A style because there's a sense of currency and agency there. And they said, well, you can't get up and do a Q&A for 45 minutes. <laughs> and I thought, I need to spin this so they get this. And I finally got it. I was like, so I've got this thing. I do this improv. <laughs> and people, they throw questions at me. And it's really hot. And then it's like there's this tension because what I'm going to say. And they're like, oh, my God, I love it. Oh, that's but, brilliant that push to be as lovingly forceful as possible to get people to ask their questions. I mean, I would say do not leave with a question here inside you still. So mm-hmm. but okay. let me think. Do we have any questions left inside of us?
1: I know, I was yes, just please. thinking that. I was for, thinking I could Sarah. ask Sarah questions for hours. So, I'm-
0: I have a question. And this isn't necessarily in a spiritual context. But what is it that you pray for? Like, what are you always wanting more of? Inner
2: peace. Mm. And outer peace, but you no, know, really, just to go about my day with calmness and equanimity. I think that's I'm a desire of that. all diarists. Yeah, I think it's a desire of all creatures with mm-hmm. um, cerebral cortices. <laughs> you know, all mammals and up probably have that need, that wish. I need to calm down. I'm high-strung. I've improved <laughs> since leaving the East Coast and moving to LA, and it's, yeah. it's been wonderful for me. But I have a lot more work to do.
1: Ditto. You know, I think one of my favorite lines. I'm going to read it from Ongoingness. I think it's actually the perfect place to close. It's kind of in line of, in the same vein of what you were just talking about. And I'm going to read it now. It's a couple two sentences, and that is, I wanted to comprehend my own position in time. So I could use my evolving self as completely and as usefully as possible. I didn't want to go lurching around half awake, unaware of the work I owed the world, work I didn't want to live without doing. I think every artist can understand that. That is so Mm. beautiful. Sarah, I adore you. My little sister just texted me and said, oh my God, you're on with Sarah. Tell her that book is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. Oh so, my goodness! thank you, thank, thank you yeah. for being here. Danielle?
0: Thank you, thank you. It's been so great to just be in the space of devotion. Mm-hmm. You make me want to be Mobetta.
1: <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, thank you. Linda. Thank you, Danielle. Love and gratitude. Thank you.
1: to hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on.